Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, not chapter 6 as is in your bulletins, but actually Mark 4, which is on page uh, 1006 of the church Bibles. Now, Mark is, in essence, the gospel of the King. If we were to find a single purpose that Mark had as he wrote his gospel, he was to, it was to show that Jesus was the King, the messianic King of expectation, the one that had been looked for ever since David himself had died, the second David that all Israel was looking for, the king who would come to establish the kingdom. But Mark's purpose is not just to show that Jesus is the king, but that he is the far greater king than anything that was ever expected. And so he begins his gospel by giving us the testimony of the herald, John the Baptist, that came before the king to declare that the king had come, that he was here, and that he should be listened to. And in the first few chapters of his gospel, Mark shows us through a series of conflicts how the expectation of the day was, in fact, wrong, and not just wrong, it was far too inadequate. The Messiah that they were looking for was not just a wrong Messiah, but he was a weak Messiah. Mark was showing them that Jesus, the true Messiah, the true King, was far greater, far more powerful, and was ushering in a kingdom far greater than anything that they could have expected. And so Mark shows us clashes that Jesus had with the Pharisees, with the ruling religious authorities of the day. And with each one of these conflicts, Mark teaches us a little bit more about Jesus. Now, if I was to ask you just to tell me one thing about the gospel of Mark, you'd probably tell me that it is a somewhat breathless gospel. Mark rushes from scene to scene, from vignette to vignette, as he teaches us about the life uh, and ministry of Christ. But here in chapter 4, he somewhat gives us a break. For a time, he calls us to sit with Jesus and listen to the parables, to just sit and listen to this extended period of teaching on the nature of the growth of the kingdom. But having rested for a time, we now find ourselves in verse 35, back on the move again. Having rested for a time and listened to the parables, we are off again. And Mark will bring us into a section of his gospel that is relatively free from the accusation and conflict that has characterized the first few chapters. Over the next few chapters of his gospel, Mark will show us Jesus ministering relatively unhindered by the religious authorities of the day. We will see Jesus in Gentile country, preaching the gospel, showing that the gospel was not just for Israel, but for the whole world, expanding the boundaries of the kingdom that he has come to establish. We'll see him healing the woman with the hemorrhage and raising uh, Jairus' daughter. We will see him teaching in his hometown, and we'll see him feeding the 5,000, all relatively free from official condemnation. In these chapters, we kind of see Jesus doing what he came to do. 
He didn't come to argue, but as Mark tells us earlier in his gospel, Jesus came to preach. As he says in chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus said to to those around him, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And so we'll see uh, in these next chapters, Jesus doing that very thing, preaching the gospel and declaring his own kingdom. But before we get to that, Mark has us in the boat with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. So, let us read that. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, but I trust you can follow in the NIV. We read, on that day the evening had come, and he, that is Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the winds were breaking, the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Before we look at this in more detail, let us look to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, to come to your word, to listen to the voice of God is an awesome and awe-inspiring thing. To think that this book that we hold in our hands is not a compilation of fables, nor is it a compilation of the wisdom of men, but it is the very words of God breathed out by God, given to us that we may know something of you and your glory and your greatness. We pray, Father, that this evening, as we look into your word, your spirit would come and speak to us through your word, that we would hear the very voice of the living God, and that we would be changed by your word. Come, Lord, bless us this evening. Show us Christ in all his glory, for we ask it in his name. Amen. So, the scene that we have here that Mark gives us in his gospel is one that I'm sure is is very familiar to us. Here we have Jesus and his disciples at the end of a long day teaching in the boat. We're told uh, in verse 35 that it was on that day, the same day that Jesus had been teaching the parables, that he had been teaching the crowds publicly, that he'd also been teaching his disciples privately, as he explained the purpose of the parables. And after this long day of teaching the crowds, of teaching the disciples, Jesus and his disciples are in the boat, because Jesus has summoned them and told them that it's time to move on. It's time to go to fresh grounds. It's time to go to the other side of the lake. Now, I'm sure that this was a move that puzzled the disciples, especially Peter. If you remember from chapter 1, from your reading of this gospel, um, after Jesus had been uh, thronged by crowds looking for 
healing. Jesus went out to a desolate place to pray, and Peter went frantically to look for him and rebuked him. He caught up with him and said to him sternly, everyone is looking for you, as if, what are you doing here, Jesus? This is a healing carnival. This is awesome. People love you. Why are you by yourself? Why are you out here? And again, Jesus is in a situation in which he has the marks of a successful ministry. He is thronged by crowds. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to see him at work. But Jesus says, no, we're leaving. We're leaving the crowds behind. We're going to the other side of the lake. And we can be sure that the disciples wondered if Jesus knew what he was doing. This just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. But it seems that by now, they have learned to keep their mouths shut and just follow him. Just, just do it. He has a plan. And so they go out onto the sea, and this great storm arises. Now, the Sea of Galilee sits 696 feet below sea level, and is surrounded by hills. And this geography means that it is prone to some very severe storms. These hills around the sea are not just small rolling hills, but extend to the height of Mount Hermon in the north, which goes to a height of 9,200 feet. And winds sweep down from these hills, and they sweep down through gorges, getting concentrated all the way, and then come out on the sea and blow the sea up into great storms. These sudden, violent storms were something that was well known, and they came during the day, which is why most of the fishing was done at night, which explains why there were so many boats on the lake with them. We're told in verse 36 that there were other boats on the lake with Jesus and his disciples. This was the time that fishing was done. This was the time that you went onto the lake because this was the least dangerous time of day. But this storm arose, this storm whipped up, and we can tell by the reaction of his disciples just how severe the storm was. After all, these were experienced fishermen, right? These were men who knew the sea. They knew what was going on. These were not novices. These were not amateurs. These weren't just soft uh, men called in from a nice centrally heated office. These were men who had grown up on the sea, men of calloused hands and wind-worn faces, men who knew the sea, who knew storms, who knew their boats. And when they looked at the storm that was around them. They were terrified. They were filled with fear. They knew very well what it would take to sink their boat, and by their estimation, their boat was going to be sunk. And so, in their panic, they go and they wake Jesus. And they come and they wake Him with this accusation, do you not care that we are about to die? And so, Jesus awakes and He turns and He rebukes the wind and then he rebukes his disciples. Now, this is a very vivid story, 
But we must ask of this, as we must do with all of Scripture, what does this teach me about Jesus? That is our primary interpretive question. And it is the question that Mark wants us to ask. It's the question he wants us to ask throughout his gospel, but especially here. Notice he includes the question of the disciples in verse 41. Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? He wants us to ask that question. He wants us to see Jesus standing in the midst of the storm and rebuking it. And he wants us to ask, who is this? Who is this Jesus that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Mark, of course, wants to answer that question for us. And simply, he wants us to see that Jesus is God. The Messiah, the Savior that was expected, was one that would come from God. He would be this great warrior king who would come riding on a great war horse, on a great stallion bearing arms to rout the Romans from Israel and to establish the kingdom, to see the temple in its glory, to restore the days of David. That's what they were looking for. But Mark says to us, look, You cannot understand the Messiah. You cannot understand the gospel. You cannot understand salvation if you do not see that the Messiah is not just from God, but the Messiah is God. He is not just a king who has been sent forth like David from God to rule his kingdom, but here we see the Messiah who is God who has come to rule his own kingdom and to establish his own kingdom. Mark says to us, we cannot understand the gospel. We cannot understand anything else that he writes in his book unless we get this fundamental fact. Jesus the Messiah is God. And so Mark gives us this incredibly vivid narrative in which Everything that Jesus does shows us that He is God. He stands in the face of the storm, and He commands the storm to be still. And the storm hears the voice of its Creator, the very voice that called the earth and all that it contains into being in the space of six days, and all very good. The wind, the waves, they hear the voice of the one that called them out of nothing into being. They hear the voice of the one that sustains them and upholds them. As the writer to the Hebrews says, it is Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of His power. Hear the creation, hears that voice. It recognizes the voice of its master, the voice of the one who upholds it by continually speaking, be upheld, creation, be kept together. The voice that goes into the storm is the voice of God. And so the creation responds as it must do. As it recognizes the voice of its master, it immediately calms down. Notice that Mark doesn't say that the storm died down or that it settled or that it grew calm, but the storm ceased. It was immediate. 
It was immediate, like a dog that is told to sit by its master. The storm sat immediately, and a great calm came over the sea. It was like a mill pond. The tempest that threatened to swamp the boat and drown the disciples was suddenly as calm as a mill pond with not even a ripple on the water. A great calm came upon us, upon it. Now, in his gospel, Mark has repeatedly shown us the king's power. He has, right from the beginning, shown us the power of this king that has come. And he has shown us that this power is far greater than any expectation. He has shown us that this king has power over disease itself. He has shown us in the healings that Jesus has performed that this king comes and heals, restores his creation. Mark has shown us that the redemption that Jesus brings includes the restoration of the image of God. It includes the restoration of humanity in the image of its maker. He's shown us that this king has power over the devil and over the forces of evil. He has shown us that the redemption that the king is ushering in includes the overthrow of Satan and the establishment of a kingdom that is free from his attacks. He has shown us in the parables that the king has power even over the growth of his kingdom. And while we may look at the kingdom and wonder how it ever could grow and ever could develop, the king is in control. He is the one who is growing his kingdom. And now Mark shows us that this king is powerful even over the hostile forces of nature. Now, in doing so, Mark touches on one of our nerve points, one of our hot spots. The forces of nature uh, symbolize the greatest threat to man. If you want to imagine a situation in which man is utterly vulnerable, you will think of a natural disaster. You'll think of a hurricane Katrina and the devastation that it wreaked on New Orleans, you will think of uh, the earthquake in Haiti. When we think of these situations, we see man who puffs himself up with his pride of how he can establish himself and, and build kingdoms. We see man brought to his knees as he is helpless in the face of the natural disaster. But here Mark says, the king that is ushering in his kingdom, is powerful even over the hostile forces of nature. The king who is ushering in his kingdom is one who is utterly and comprehensively in control. Well, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for my life here and now? Well, there are times, as we all know, that God will lead us into a storm as he did with the disciples. This was no accident that the disciples found themselves in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus knew what he was doing, and he brought them into this storm in order to test them and in order to show them more of himself, to show them more of who he truly was. And in a same way, in a similar way, the Lord will bring us all into storms at times. They will all face storms in our lives. Now, our culture, our Western culture, 
as probably every culture, does its best in order to try and minimize these storms, and that's understandable, but we can never escape them completely. The culture in which I am ministering on St. Simon's Island is one that is designed almost with the sole purpose of minimizing the storms. It is a wealthy island. It is a very self-reliant island. It is one that if you were to drive around on, you would think the world was pretty much perfect. Every blade of grass stands in the right direction. There's no poverty around. There's certainly no homeless people. But behind every one of these closed doors, behind the manicured lawns, we know that every person on that island has at one time or another faced a great storm, whether that be the loss of a job which can uh, rock a man or, or a woman. It may be illness that comes into even the richest of families. It may be old age as people see their strength and their abilities sapping away from them. It may be bankruptcy. It may be a whole host of things. But if we can be sure of one thing, it is that we will face storms at one time or another. And so the question is, how will you respond? Will you respond like the disciples who came with their accusation of, do you not care? A question that was more of a statement than an inquiry. Is that how you will address God in the midst of the storm? Will you come and say to Him, do you not care? Do you not care that these things are happening to me? Or will you hold fast to the anchor that cannot move? Will you say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. It's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Will you say, do you not care? Or will you say to God, everything may go. I may lose my job. I may lose my house. I may lose my health. I may lose my family. But in the midst of it all, you are my strength. You are the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. Will you accuse with the disciples or will you say with Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. Believers, do not let the storm have a louder voice than Christ. Do not let the sound of the storm ringing in your ears be louder than the voice of of Christ, when you are rocked by the winds and waves of trials, listen to the voice of the King, the one who is powerful over all things. Now, you may say to me, that's fine, and that sounds very good, but how do I know that He is steadfast and true? How do I know that Jesus is this anchor that will not move? How do I know that He is steadfast and true when everything around me points in the other direction. How do I know? Well, believers, look at the cross. Look at the cross. You see, the answer to the disciples' question is not that this Jesus is the Almighty Creator God. The answer to the disciples' question is not that, that, that this Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. Certainly that is true. 
But the answer to their question is really that this Jesus is the almighty creator and sustaining God who would go to the cross to face the worst of storms as he faced the wrath of his Father against sin in order to save his people. Until you see Jesus on the cross, until you see him on Calvary's cross facing that greatest of all storms, you will never know the answer to to the question in verse 41. You see, we have a Savior who is not just a sympathetic friend, lending a listening ear in the midst of trial, telling us that everything will be okay. He is not just another counselor come to listen to our words and to pat us on the back and to comfort us, although He does comfort us. But our Savior is one who faced the greatest storm, submitting Himself to the full consequences of sin as He faced the Father's wrath so that we can face the storms of life without being tossed to and fro, but being anchored to the rock which cannot move. You see, we have a Savior who faced the greatest storm on the cross, submitting Himself to the full consequences of sin as He faced the Father's wrath so that all the storms would be done away with, that all things would be made new, and that we could rest in His heavenly rest and no longer be subject to the hostility of the world. There is a great hymn which is not sung nearly enough, which says, it's entitled simply, Will Your Anchor Hold in the Storms of Life? If you were brought up in the Church of Scotland, you probably know it. And there is a line at the end of that hymn which says, When our eyes behold through the gathering night the city of God, our harbor bright, we shall anchor fast by the heavenly shore with the storms all past forevermore. You see, believers, we have a Savior who faced the greatest of all storms, that He may establish His kingdom perfectly, that He may usher in the new heavens and the new earth that are free from the storms of life, that are a heavenly harbor for us. Within the walls of that heavenly Jerusalem, we will be free from storms. You see, the gospel does not promise freedom from the effects of sin or difficulties, uh, freedom from difficulties or hardship or grief. We will experience those as long as we are on this earth, as long as Christ tarries. But in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those hardships. The question that the gospel confronts us with is, what will your response be when these storms hit, when they come? Will you accuse God like the disciples? Will you come and ask Him, do you not care? Or will you rest in the one that even the wind and the waves obey? Believers, we have a Savior that is solid and true. We have a Savior who is not just sent from God, but who is Himself God. Trust Him. Cast yourself upon Him. Hide yourself in Him 
and find in Him the only comfort in the midst of the storm. That hymn that I quoted is, uh, is the words that I'd like to, to end with. These words remind us of the steadfastness and surety of our Savior. As it says that we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and true while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. It is safely moored, twill the storm withstand, for it is well secured by the Savior's hand, and the cables pass from hence hand to mine can defy the blast through strength divine. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You that we have such a sure and magnificent Savior in Jesus Christ, that He is the King who has come with His first advent to establish His kingdom, and who is coming again and with His second advent will bring that kingdom to completion as He comes riding on the clouds to establish the new heavens and the new earth that will be free from the storms that come from the effects of sin, that come from disease, that come from corruption, that come from death. Lord, we thank You that in the meantime, as we are left here to minister between the advents of Christ, that we can hold fast to our Savior that we can say with Spurgeon that we have learned to kiss the wave that strikes us against the rock of ages. We thank You that we have a sure and certain Savior who is our confidence in whom we have perfect rest. Father, we pray it in His name. Amen.